sometimes we have many stories in our lives that we need to be telling that we're not telling. And what we'd like to do is we'd like to improve on that quite a bit as a church. And there's many settings and locations and times where we would either like to ask folks to give a testimony or we'd like to be able to give one on your behalf. Some folks are like, you will never, ever get me to stand in front of a group and say anything. Um, Well, God can do amazing stuff. In spite of what you think you can't do, God can get you to do that. But for the extremely wimpy, uh, we will allow sometimes that we would give the testimony in your stead. But, But testimonies should be given. They are a proclamation of the reality of God right now. And so today's message is particularly relevant to this. But can I get a witness? First thing I need you to do here, and everybody needs to fill this out, and everybody's going to turn it in in about five minutes. First thing I need everybody to do is on the bottom of this page to put your name right now. Put your name on the bottom of the page. And if you wouldn't mind, maybe on the other side, could you put an email address if you have that? It would make it easier for us to communicate with you in the future if we needed to ask you some, some details further about something. Name and your email address on the bottom. <clears throat> now, when you're done with that, let me just give you an example of what we want to see you do here. The question is, in what areas of your life could you recount a story of God's grace that we've been saying, and I want to call to our attention frequently, is the mysterious power that is present when we open this word. Now, this, is, this is not the moment where the Spirit of God does not reside and affect us. If it were not for the Spirit of God, these would simply be words on the page and we might as well have the fresh edition of the Times-Picayune before us. These words have power because a living God gives power to them in the presence of them being read and studied. And so whenever you open the word, you are opening your life to an encounter with God. And this morning, we're going to honor the fact that the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So faith gets built in our life by us hearing the word of God. And and this morning, you are going to give consideration to over 25 different passages of Scripture this morning. So we're going to be reading quite a bit of Scripture. And the reason for that is that faith comes by hearing. And we need to hear the Word of God in areas that we perhaps are are uninformed of or that we have to have faith to enter into it. And sometimes we need to be convinced that God is wanting us to experience something before we will be open and convinced that we should be experiencing it ourselves. So open up to John chapter 1. This passage we're considering is towards the, the end of the section in the Gospel of John, as we've been studying, devoted to John the Baptist, who is featured by the Lord at the beginning of the Gospels. As a matter of fact, he is featured in almost all the Gospels at the beginning, that he is witnessing and he is performing a very important task that all of us are called to, to be witnesses and bringing to us clarity about who is Jesus Christ and what has he done. I want to read verse 29 through verse 34 this morning. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me 
because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now I want to... I want to take just a second here. Think with me for a moment, because sometimes we, we don't think with the Bible when we read it. This passage has an element in it that questions should be asked when we come to the Bible as what it says and also consider what it could say that it doesn't say. And then sometimes you read a passage, you ought to be thinking of all the things that it could say. It only says this. And this is one of those passages here. When John is bearing witness about Christ, he's going to say two things here. First, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that's the witness that he gives. Now, we would expect him to explain that to us. Jesus' mission is to come and be a sacrificial offering to take away sin and to bring forgiveness to man. But then there's one other thing that he testifies in this passage about Jesus Christ. He's already illuminated he, who he is, who's the person of God. He is God come in the flesh. I've come to bear witness to the light. This life was the light of all men. He's explained to us who the person is, but when he moves to the work, and believe me, it's very important that you understand both the person of Christ and the work of Christ. It could be the difference between you being saved or not. If you have the wrong person, you can't be saved by him, even if you believe in his work. If you, if you don't have the work that he did, you can have a great God and appreciate who he is. But if you don't have him coming and being the sacrifice for your sins and the necessity that he would be the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, you can't be saved. But what's interesting here is in verse 33, the other thing he decides in this moment, the marquee of Jesus Christ's work is going to only mention two things here. In verse 33, the second thing is mentioned. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who... Fill in the blank now. Now, is that what you would have put there? I mean, come on. Now think about what could have been put there. This is he who raises the dead. This is he who heals our infirmities. This is he who restores Israel. This is he who puts eternity in the, into the hearts of men. I mean, Jesus has quite a resume. You could have said a lot. John the Baptist gets a revelation from the Father, and when he testifies about Christ in this passage, he only says two things about him. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Now, for some... It's almost as though there's music for he's the Lamb of God. And then we get to this baptism in the Holy Spirit, and it's almost like I can hear, What? <clears throat> Wait a minute, you're going to go there with this? Now, let me tell you, I was not going to go there with this, quite honestly. This weekend, Peter, I think Peter would have been the next pastor preaching. 
He'd have been starting in verse 35. A couple of weeks ago, as I'm studying the passage that we did last week, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I am arrested as a Bible expositor. Our goal is to exposit Scripture. It's to, it's to just let the Scriptures speak for themselves. And I'm ready to move on to the next passage. And, and God is like, Keith, what are you, an expository idiot? You look at that passage and you highlight one dynamic and the other dynamic that I make just as much noise about. As, as a matter of fact, I didn't say this carefully. I, you know, John seems to be stumbling over himself to say this. If you follow what John says in other accounts in the scriptures, when John the Baptist begins to explain, I baptize with water, but there's one greater coming after me. All that phraseology is him moving towards this conclusion. When he starts off with, I'm the guy baptizing in water, but there's another one. He's greater. He's before me. All that statement is moving toward one conclusion. By comparison to me, I'm not great. He's great. By comparison to me, I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Well, when John the Baptist begins to reveal who Christ is and they're asking him, "Who, who are you? And he's explaining who Christ is. Way back earlier, he begins to stumble on this. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. He's already wanting to talk about this one who's coming, who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And he stops along the way and he, and he tells the story of, behold, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. But then he's right back to the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Now, how many of you know that baptism in the Holy Spirit is not just in Acts chapter 2? Now, listen, there are some here this morning who, who you just, your heart's wide open, you just come to the Bible, and you, you've been recently saved, been in the kingdom for a short period of time, and you're just kind of like, hey, okay, whatever it says, I'm, I'm good, I'm game, let's go. There's some people right now, right now, the mentioning of the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a wall to climb. It's a doctrine you don't care for because you've, for whatever reason, it's been mishandled, you have personal impressions about it. But can you go here with me for a moment? Do you understand if we moved on from this passage without highlighting this, we would have done a disservice to the witness of John the Baptist. Can you, can you travel there with me for a moment? Because it is what the Bible goes to. Of all the things Jesus Christ could have been said, and, and, and of all the things about his ministry and, the, and his life, he's the Lamb, and he's the baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, today, I think this issue would be passed over too easily. The emphasis and the awareness and the reality would be passed over way too quickly. Gordon Fee, he says, Despite the affirmations in our creeds and hymns and the lip service paid to the Spirit in our occasional conversations, the Spirit is largely marginalized in our actual life together as a community of faith. And I would have to agree. The Spirit is largely marginalized. The reality, the occurrence, the everyday presence of the Spirit of God is largely marginalized. Now, the reason why I think this is a huge issue is what we began to talk about last week. It has to do with God's passion for His presence amongst His people. Remember the whole imagery that we drew out and took time with last week. Where do we get this image of the Lamb of God? Well, we get it from the tabernacle. 
That's where we get it from. The Lamb of God gets his significance because every morning and every evening, a lamb was offered in the tabernacle seven days a week. So the system of sacrifice is, is, is in the heavens. Moses is told to build it and he sets it upon earth. But as we said last week, and please catch the passion of God, does God build a tabernacle because he loves to see animals tortured? He loves to see blood. God loves, loves the color red, and he wants blood spilled everywhere. And there was blood spilling all over the place. This tabernacle was not a neat place. Why does God do this? So we said last week, put it again in your outline, Exodus 25, 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Build the tabernacle after the pattern that I'm going to reveal to you, Moses. Let them make this that I may dwell in their midst. Not so that there can be lots of blood everywhere. Not just so that there can be an offering and sacrifices. I want to dwell amongst my people. I want the reality of my presence to be with my people. That's the passion of God. And the ministry of the Lamb of God was twofold. One, it was to propitiate. That's a fancy word for it. To satisfy the character of God. A holy God looks upon sin, as we said last week, and the very nature and character of God, the fire of a consuming God touching the paper of our lives, consumes our lives and destroys us. So this is a problem. God will never have a relationship with sinful man because man is sinful and God is perfect. And the moment his presence touched our lives, it would be over. And our lives would be destroyed. Because the righteousness of God demands that of unrighteousness. Propitiation is Jesus Christ standing in between that and taking on himself the ignition, the wrath, the power of God against unrighteousness when Jesus takes our sin on himself. So first, the Lamb of God satisfies God so that he doesn't have to consume us for our sins. But second, as we saw last week, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. It removes a barrier a barrier to what? A barrier to the presence of God. And do you remember the presence of God in the Old Testament and where it was? God told them where it was. Look in here in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1 through 2. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. When they drew near before the Lord and died. You understand? You come before God in a way that does not wrap you in righteousness that does not remove your guilt and your sin, this holy God would consume you on the spot. And fire came out and destroyed both of these boys. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. I'm warning you. Don't let anybody get past this veil, Moses. If they get past this veil and they get into my presence, my presence will destroy them. Don't let it happen. So where was the presence of God? It was behind a veil. But do you understand in the Old Testament, did people know about the presence of God? Yes, they did. Let me ask you this. Did they know about it personally? No, they did not. They were aware of the presence of God. But the ones who experienced it ended up dead 
or ended up having to follow God's means of being able to experience it on a very limited basis. The presence of God for the people of God was behind a veil. And there was a glory cloud that appeared when the presence of God was there. And the people of God were aware. God's presence is there. Now, do you remember what happens when Jesus Christ comes and the Lamb comes and he takes away the sin of the world? On the cross, as he sheds his blood... And he utters these words, it is finished. The Bible then records that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This veil was about a four inch thick piece of of, of fabric that hung in the temple to separate the presence of God, to keep the presence of God away from the people. Now, what an interesting thing when the lamb takes away the sin of the world. Now God sends a message to everybody by grabbing hold of that veil from the top all the way to the bottom. And he tears it in two. And when you come in there, there's this hanging veil no longer. What is God saying? My presence is now accessible to you. I have opened a way for you, every person, to experience me now in a way that before was limited to only a few. The way has been opened. This is a passion for God. Understand, even if you and I never understood any of this stuff, this is the heart of God wanting to build back into our lives. No more separation. No more you over there, me over here. No more you just being aware. Somewhere out there is the presence of God, but I I can't go near it. No, you can. And you are welcomed and you are called into the presence of God. Look at James chapter 4, verse 4. It says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And this is a very it's a very complicated sentence, in the original language. But what it, what is attempting to convey to us is God's desire For his spirit to dwell in us is a lust for God. It is a strong desire on his part that dwelling in us would be the spirit of God himself dwelling in us. This is that same desire of God that's always been there. Moses, build me a place for my presence. I want to be amongst my people. I want my people to experience me. Now, can you can you see this about this work of Christ, this work of the lamb? It was a means unto an end. See, it would be incomplete for the church to only celebrate the cross and stop. The cross is a means to an end. The cross is the necessary measures for God to be satisfied so that what? So that God could keep a veil in place and say, listen, your sins are forgiven, okay? Everybody, I'm I'm cool with you. I'm not going to come blast you and kill you and destroy you, and you can enter into eternity. But you stay on that side of the veil, and I'll stay on this side. See, it's very significant that what the cross accomplishes is the veil is torn, and now the presence of God is now accessible to every believer. Every believer. That's what is being revealed in John the Baptist's witness here. So the person and work of Jesus Christ in your outline. God incarnate, acting as our sacrificial substitute, restoring the presence of God to his people. That's the person and work of Christ. 
He is doing all that in his mission. And that's what's being highlighted by John the Baptist. Now, Gordon Fee helps us with understanding in this new covenant, this issue of the presence of God. He says, the spirit in Paul's experience and theology was always thought of in terms of the personal presence of God. Continue this theme all throughout the Old Testament into the New now. The Spirit is God's way of being present, powerfully present in our lives and communities as we await the consummation of the kingdom of God. The Spirit is God's way of being present, powerfully present. And I put the emphasis on this, powerfully present. Right? You, you want a good, clear picture of this when the presence of God falls on people? Look at Second Chronicles. To Lanyap, it's not in your outline here. I won't charge you anything extra to look here. Second Chronicles chapter 7. This is the day that the tabernacle turns into the temple and it gets built as a permanent structure. And Solomon invites all the nation of Israel. They come before God and they worship God. They offer offerings and there are so, there's so much blood everywhere. And then look what happens here. Verse 1 of Second Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer... Fire came down from heaven. Can you hold on to that picture? Fire comes from heaven. What came from heaven? Fire. Thank you. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. This is the presence of God. The glory of God amongst his people. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord. Because the glory of the Lord filled the house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Interesting what comes out of an encounter with the glory of God. Worship. And then this is the power of God, right? These people all got blown away. It's like the, the glory of God fell in that place and it was so thick. It was like electricity was in the air. There was this sense of smoke everywhere and the priests couldn't go about their duties. But it's interesting. They didn't run. They didn't freak out. They turned and worshiped and proclaimed of God. He is good. <clears throat> it's like the aroma of God and the presence of God was communicating to, to them. His goodness and who his character is for his steadfast love. That's that word has said that loving kindness of God, that that covenant love of God endures forever. The presence of God in all of its awesomeness imparted a sense of his character and his love for them. Now, this is a powerful, powerful picture of the presence of God when it falls in a place. Now, before I move, move back to the New Testament with me. Move to John chapter 7, just for a second. Another free verse, no extra charge. <clears throat> when I say the, the glory of God falling, when I, just, when I say the Spirit of God falling, what definition do you have for that? What do you expect that to look like? Well, Second Chronicles 7 is a good, good place. What about this verse in John chapter 7? Verse 37 says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me 
and drank. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now when he is glorified and the Spirit is given, everybody's told to come and drink a cupful, right? Come get a cupful. And then out of you will flow another cupful, right? That's not what this verse says, is it? It says, come and drink, and out of your life will flow rivers of living water. Make sure, make sure we get the, the size of what God says sometimes. When the Spirit of God comes and He falls on our lives, do we have a river-sized expectation of what that might look like for the Christian? Or is it maybe a little thimble? It's wet. There's some moisture. There's a cup full. Maybe for the really spiritual here, maybe it's a jug. But where's the day of the river flowing from the life of a Christian? This is flowing, by the way. This is what's coming out of us. This is not just what's coming to us. This is what manages to escape out of us. And I think that's a bigger challenge, right? God can pour out all he wants. I can miss a whole lot. It can fall off of me. It could get stuck inside of me. But this is what the Bible says was going to come out of me. Out of the Christian's life comes a river of living water. And that river fits with Old Testament pictures. See, the glory of God is this powerful, powerful experience of the presence of God. Now, what was Jesus after in taking away the sin and being the Lamb of God? Well, he was after what John the Baptist moves to next. He's the baptizer in the Spirit. He's the, word, he's the one who brings the engulfing of the Spirit, the swallowing up of your life. By the Spirit. He is restoring the presence of God. Now, what does that look like? Do you, do you already have a definition for it? I think, unfortunately, we do. All of us, unfortunately, very unfortunately, already have a definition that we've become satisfied with. And we're okay with the level of the experience of the glorious presence of God in our lives. It's been defined. It's been defined, unfortunately, it has been defined by our experience. I heard a guy use this phrase the other day from South Africa. A guy we listened to on the retreat together. And, he, and the warning in his message was that we not let our experience become the father of our theology. That's a good word. That's a word with razors on both sides. There's some folks who experience, their experience is, is way out there. In, in activity that you can't find in Scripture. Well, we're very quick to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, don't, don't let your experience create your theology. Well, on the other side of the spectrum, there are some people who are having no experiences, who don't know what it is to experience the presence of God. And then when they say, sure, the pres- I'm, I'm all over that message. Yeah, God's restoring. Oh, what does that look like? Does it look like some benign denominational setting? Listen, you know, I, I can't understand, right, let, let's just, we're, we're going to create church service. We're going to create gatherings for the people of God. What should that look like? It should look very staid and calm and a few people animated. 
This is a gathering for the presence of God. The veil has been torn. The presence of God desires to come amongst his people. The passion of God. What should this look like? Do you think there were a variety of these in the Old Testament? Do you think there was like uh, the first presence of God, church, and then first assembly of presence and fellowship presence gathering? So that, you know, if, if you had preferences, you know, we have preferences. We like certain styles. So, you know, I don't really particularly care for that kind of style over there. So I, you, know, you go to there, I go to first presence of God. Oh, I would never go there. I had relatives who went there. I go to fellowship presence. You understand a lot of the reasons why people go to the church they go to is because of the style of the church. What's amazing, I talk to people who go from one church to another. People have left here and gone somewhere else and had a church theologically that is upside down from where we were. And you never hear them say that. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, did you hear anything while we were here? People theologically, it's not theology that drives a lot of people's church choices. It's style. You realize in the Old Testament, you didn't have style. You had the presence of God being what the presence of God was. And when he showed up, you didn't get to say, mm, wow, smoke, cloud, people can't minister. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'll go down the road. It's a little quieter over there. They don't do all that kind of stuff. This is the presence of God. The gathering of the people of God is for the presence of God. So that the river of the life of God can flow through his people. And God is seeking to restore that. And we should not aim at creating some setting. You know, I, you know, I can't go with, you know, this partially offends you. What I'm trying to get you to do this morning is simply start with the Bible to figure out what something should be. <clears throat> I can't explain a church that when they come together, they don't sing like wild maniacs. I can't explain that biblically. I can explain it traditionally. People who don't clap their hands, people who don't shout, people who don't dance, people who don't celebrate. I, you understand, if, if that's you in some way, I can't find you in the Bible. Because what I find in the Bible is people affected by God, celebrating God in an enormous way with everything that they are. If you're capable of screaming when your kids hit the home run in the ballpark, then your worship should look like that. Amen. <clears throat> And if it doesn't look like that, I can't find you in the Bible. Go to a church that's like that, I can't find that church in the Bible. So we don't want to create these settings that look like something we've become comfortable with, that they're not the Bible. God wants his presence amongst his people. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, I want to, I want to issue, talk about two dynamics of the presence of God. Again, this is, this is not an attempt at rocket science. This is just very simple. Let's read some scripture together and see what it says. And so I'm going to move through a bunch of scripture here quickly. Two descriptions, I think, that you find throughout the, 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 the Bible concerning the Spirit of God. One is people being born of the Spirit. That terminology of born of the Spirit is throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> the emphasis in this usage is regeneration, new creation, Sort of a spiritual genetics, what makes us up who we are, change in internal makeup. Wayne Grudem says regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. This is sometimes called being born again. Because regeneration is a work of God within us in which he gives us new life, it is right to conclude that it is an instantaneous event. It happens only once. 
At one moment, we are spiritually dead. And then at the next moment, we have new spiritual life from God. Here would be examples in Scripture. There there are several more, but this would flavor us. John 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is his conversation with Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And I marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And there's a dimension of the Spirit, being born of the Spirit. We find it again in these other passages. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So there's regeneration and renewal, this internal work by the Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. First John three, verse nine. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Ezekiel 36, locating this unique work, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, observation from those scriptures real quickly and several others that are just like them. When you find the descriptions like born again, rebirth, regeneration, one These are more internal working dynamics. The mere language of it is something that has come into you. Something of the presence of God has come into you, and it's become part of you from the deepest being of who you are. This is a huge teaching. I wish I had time to unfold it. But I just want you to see the dynamic. God is working in an indwelling fashion in the life of a believer, imparting to you a new life. Regeneration means new genesis. A new creative work on the inside of man has come. Second, these words, they are more consistently connected with our walk, our decisions, our motives, our overcoming of sin, loving one another. Just go back and look at the references. Pull out your concordance that you bought at the the bookstore out here and go, go look for born. Just look up the word born and go find every place where born is used. And, and words like regeneration, go look these words up. And go find out what kind of activity is associated with them when they're mentioned. And you get a flavor for kind of, okay, well, what context tends to drive a discussion on being born again? It's interesting that when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again, he doesn't go on with Nicodemus to say, Nicodemus, you must be born again so that you can raise the the dead and cast out demons and heal the sick. That's not usually the context And the emphasis in being born again. But there's another dimension of the Spirit. 
being baptized in the Holy Spirit. The emphasis in this usage is power and dynamic and expression and ministry. Now listen to the way this gets used. Now remember, we're starting here. We're in John chapter 1. Go there if you need to read that verse again with me. John chapter 1 is how this has gotten driven for us. He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting that when God reveals the baptism in the Spirit to John the Baptist, the context for it occurring is, John, there's going to come a day when the one that you're not aware that he is the one. He's going to come and you're going to baptize him. And when you see the Spirit descend on him... That's the context for him getting a revelation that he's the one who baptizes in the Spirit. And it's an interesting context, one worth examining. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, in your outline. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Now, please note, I put all these verses in our outline for this reason. So that you could see particular words that are used in particular ways consistently. So I've underlined them for you so you can follow along and you can see what, what was John trying to say when he said this Jesus is the Lamb who takes away the sin and he is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. What should that cause me to think and anticipate? Well, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Now if you are in Luke right now, The next section in Luke leading into chapter 4 would be a genealogy of who Jesus Christ is. So almost you get this parenthetical moment where Jesus, he's being baptized and the Spirit comes upon him. And then we get a genealogy and then we go back to the storyline in Luke chapter 4 verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, just after this temptation and Jesus' victory over the enemy, which, by the way, is perhaps our first explanation of the ministry of spirit and truth. He is full of the spirit, led into the wilderness. He combats the enemy in the power of the spirit with the truth. Spirit and truth. Not one or the other. Spirit and truth. You overcome the enemy by spirit and truth. It's not by how many Bible verses you memorize, although I hope you did your memory verse this week. How many of you guys did your memory verse this week? Improving, improving. The rest of you. You can come back next week. (laughs) After that, we're not sure. Luke 4, verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Now listen to the words associated here. The Spirit's descended upon him. He is full of the Spirit. He is in the power of the Spirit. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Remember, he stands up in the, the, um, come on, little Jewish gathering place. Synagogue, thank you. (laughs) He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. I mean, this this is going into battle. This is ministry. This is combating the enemy. This is advancing the kingdom. This is facing the powers of darkness and people who are enshackled in chains. And what it takes is the Spirit being upon him and anointing him for that ministry. He was sent, 
He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen to Acts chapter 10, verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Did you start to see the word power hanging out all over the place here? Power, power, power is always a present emphasis when we're talking about baptism in the Spirit. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, please note something here. This incredible ministry of Jesus Christ, this power-packed ministry, this impacting raising of the dead and healing of the sick and proclaiming with authority words that drove out demons and set people free from all their, their paralysis in their lives. This happened after the baptism by John when the Spirit descended on him. Note, Jesus' ministry of power begins after the Spirit descends on him. All these foolish, goofy ideas that you've heard, you haven't heard them from the Bible, by the way. But you hear them in all these goofy people writing about Jesus in the first century. You know, Jesus wasn't a little boy running around doing magic tricks. You know, like he, he picked up some dirt one day and turned them into birds and threw them in people's face. You know, there's little stories about that Jesus did all this stuff. Jesus was not known. You understand, John the Baptist is out and he's, he comes right out and says, I did not know him. When the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus and he starts doing all these things, everybody knows him. The cat is out of the bag now. If Jesus had been the little power evangelist walking around at 10... You know, laying hands on people and raising the dead and doing all these powerful, miraculous things. He'd have been known by everybody. Can you imagine a little 10-year-old boy showing up in the temple, zapping people and doing stuff? He would have been known. But he was not known. And he became known and he became powerful and his ministry took on these dimensions after the descending of the Spirit on him. And he says, the Spirit of the God is upon me. He has anointed me. Now, Luke chapter 24, verse 48. The very end of this gospel, Luke records, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples at the very end, before he goes to the Father. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you get the the visual here? Whatever Jesus is about to do to them, he says it's going to be like being clothed in something. You're going to be wrapped in this thing. Stay. And now power is mentioned again. What is these images building towards? Well, Acts chapter 1 verse 4 picks up the image again. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. John chapter 1. I want you to see this phrase because John was very clear. He understood the ministry of Jesus Christ. And this was such an important thing that it got double billing along with him being the lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Jesus is going to repeat that revelation over and over and over again to his disciples. He's told them before John baptized with water. 
but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Remember that image of fire? Made you, make sure you, fire. Remember that image of fire? You're going to be baptized with the presence of God, with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. Verse 8. But you will receive power, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's keep going. Acts chapter 10. Now we're well into the book of Acts now. And Peter is led by the Spirit. Remember, he has this vision. Here's a supernatural encounter. He has a vision. All right, how many of us have visions? Not enough of us. Peter has a vision. He sees this, this lowering of these animals upon this sheet. And he, gets, he gets a revelation. This word picture comes in a revelation that he's to go to the Gentiles who have been considered unclean, like these animals were considered unclean to eat. And the Spirit of God makes real to him through a vision that your ministry is to the Gentiles. You're to go to the Gentiles. And he goes. And this happens on the first visit to a Gentile household of a man named Cornelius. Peter goes and shares the gospel, begins to preach to them. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of of the Holy Spirit was poured out. Do you see how all these images keep drawing us back to the same pictures? Even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? Hold on to that phrase. Receive the Holy Spirit. What happened in Cornelius' house? He preached the gospel. They believed and they received the Holy Spirit. How do we know they received the Holy Spirit? Well, according to this verse... Because people could see them extolling God and speaking in tongues. And he said, just as we have. Acts chapter 11. Now, Peter's kind of in trouble. Peter's gone to Gentiles. Peter is a Jew. He's gone to Gentiles. He's brought the gospel. Peter, you've got some explaining to do. So Acts chapter 11 is Peter trying to explain. Look, God told me to go do it. And I went and did it. Can I tell you what happened, though? Acts chapter 11, he's explaining what happened. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Hold on to that. Verse 16. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John chapter 1 again. What happened in Cornelius' house? What happened in Cornelius' house was what John was talking about in John chapter 1. That's what happened in Cornelius' house. What should it look like for somebody to be filled with the Spirit? Baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, I don't know where you're getting your definition from, but if I just get it from the Bible, I could go visit Cornelius' house, and i got a good, I got a good idea about what that's going to look like. If I just go to the Bible, right? Now, why was Peter so convinced that what they had just done, they had received the Holy Spirit? He said, because just as on us in the beginning. Okay, Peter, wait, 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 time out, Peter. What are you talking about, just as on us at the beginning? Well, if you don't know the Bible, Acts chapter 2 is what he's talking about. This is on us in the beginning, the experience we had. Acts 2 verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of what? Fire. Appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
This draws back to me the pictures of the tabernacle, the presence of God and the fire of God coming. But now the veil is torn. Now it's not just the high priest. Now it's everybody. So distributed tongues of fire are on everyone. The presence of God comes to everyone. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In Acts chapter 2, verse 16, Peter has to explain this to the crowd. But this, he says to the crowd, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out. Do you see this pour out phrase over and over again? He will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters. What will happen? Right, stop reading. What will happen if I tell you this morning God wants to pour out his spirit on you? What will happen? I don't know. It depends on first church assembly of that, fellowship of that. Depends on where we come from, right? What if I don't come from anywhere? I just look at the Bible and I say, I don't know what to expect except what's here. Well, Joel says, well, when he pours out his spirit, well, here's some things that would happen. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. Acts 2, verse 37. Peter is preaching to the crowd. He says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. What does he mean? Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's what he said happened to them in Cornelius' house later on. He used the same phrase. Can anybody not have a reason for us not to baptize these guys who have received the Holy Spirit, just like we did in the beginning. And he uses that phrase to describe what they experienced was receiving the Spirit in their terminology. And that terminology gets used well elsewhere. I won't develop these passages, but Acts 8, verse 14. When the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might, what? Receive... The Holy Spirit. Now, this verse gets even more enlightening. Verse 16. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. These are, these are purposeful words. These are helpful words. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Time out. Philip has gone and preached. Philip. Philip's a solid dude. You want to read about Philip? Start reading Acts chapter 6 about a guy named Philip. Philip is an evangelist. Philip is effective. Philip is preaching the gospel. People are getting saved and they're being baptized. But they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. He has not yet fallen on any of them. Hmm. That's an interesting thing. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Well, how do we know that? If you keep reading the story, something happened. Just like in Cornelius' house. They knew the Spirit's been received. Something happened. Something happened here, so much so that a magician who was there saw what happened. He said, oh, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to put my hands on people and have that happen. Now, whatever that was, it was noticeable in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 19, even more interesting. It happens that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Listen, there he found some disciples 
Paul believes these are Christians. Apollos has been ministering in this part of the world. He believes these are Christians. And he asks him a question. It's a very interesting question. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've, we've not even heard that there is a Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Now he's starting to realize, well, we've got a problem on our hands. They said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And no matter how you chop this verse up theologically, you have interesting opportunities in understanding the Spirit here. First, you have the Apostle Paul who comes and asks what sounds like the dumbest question in the universe, unless his theology allows for it. He's not walking in going, hmm, I bet you guys are a bunch of followers of John the Baptist. You've only been baptized into the baptism of repentance. You don't even really understand the gospel yet. So let's start there. No, he walks in thinking y'all are disciples. And he asks what sounds like the dumbest question could be asked. Did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Wait a minute, Paul. Time out. You know, if we're Christians, of course we receive the Spirit. Well, receive the Spirit has certain dynamic to it in the book of Acts. That makes sense that, that there are two expressions of the Spirit. There's being born of the Spirit and there's being baptized in the Spirit. And you could ask it out of that context. Now, if you're a Christian, you have been born of the Spirit. The regenerating power of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit is in you. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit regenerating you. You're not a Christian. But yet you can be a Christian and still have Paul come and ask you this question. Did you receive the Spirit? Now, when he says receive the Spirit, I think he's talking about pouring out, coming on, dimension of the Spirit. And why do I say that? Because every verse that I gave to you here says it that way. Every time receive the Spirit is referenced, it's talking about Cornelius' house where something happened. It's talking about Acts chapter 2 where something happened. It's referring to that dynamic that's all throughout Scripture, that when the Spirit came upon Jesus, stuff started happening. Noticeable stuff started happening. There is a dimension of the presence of God that the word baptism in the Spirit brings to us. When you find descriptions like came upon, fell upon, filled, baptized, anointed, these are all engulfing, submerging, overwhelming, and closing terminologies. The word baptism is the word baptizo. It's what you would describe that if a, if a, a ship sank to the bottom of the ocean, you would, you would say in the Greek, you would say uh, el shippo baptizo, or something like that. That's how you confess the word you use. Where's the ship? It's at the bottom of the ocean. It is engulfed in the ocean. It is underneath, wrapped in, and the ocean's all over it. That's the word being used here. Came upon, fell upon, poured out. They're all the same type words, aren't they? This isn't a cupful. They are consistently connected with ministry, outward expressions, and power. Everywhere you find them. They're about advancing the kingdom. They're about power. They're about experiencing the presence of God in unique ways. Now, can I get everybody to admit with me? Is it biblically accurate to say that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is both coming in and coming upon the believer? Can everybody go there with me? I don't care where you come from theologically in this moment. Can everybody agree, just from the scriptures, not from my personal traditions, what I have or have not experienced, can we all go to the place where the ministry of the Spirit is both coming in the believer and coming upon the believer? Can we say that from the scriptures? I believe we have to say that from the scriptures. Well, then where do we go with this? 
where we go with the thought in Acts chapter 2, this promise is for you and for your children and for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. This promise is for you. Okay, well, Keith, I appreciate that. that okay. And I can kind of see what you're saying. But here's my question. I want you to see. I wrote it out in your outline. My question is this. If baptism in the Holy Spirit is so important and the promise is for all whom the Lord calls to himself and the ministry of Jesus is to baptize believers in the Holy Spirit, then why do so many not receive it? That's a legitimate question, isn't it? If you've not received an experience, you should be asking that question. When you look and you see what the Bible describes and you look at other people's experiences, you should be asking that question. But here's the danger in that question. Is do we want our experience to become the father of our theology? Well, I'm not experienced what was in Acts and what was described by Jesus' ministry and the coming of... I've not experienced that. So therefore, I believe thus and such. Out of your experience, you believe that? But that's not what the Bible says, does it? The Bible says something else. The Bible makes me think differently. Now let me raise this question. Matt, go ahead and come up. Let me raise this question. I think I included it in your outline as well. John the Baptist says two things about Jesus Christ in this passage. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Question. If the ministry of Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God and our sins are taken away, then why don't we experience automatic freedom, deliverance, and victory over sin? You follow me? Jesus Christ comes and he says, I'm the Lamb of God. I take away the sin of the world. Wait a minute, Jesus. That's not my experience. See, my experience is sin lives at my back door. My experience is I stumbled, I lied, I've had a habit, I have wrestled with this issue, I have this, that, this, that, just last week, just yesterday. So my experience, you want your experience to become the father of your theology. Because if you do, then now you have to question, did the Lamb of God really take away the sin of the world? Because it sure looks like sin's still messing in your backyard, Right? But when we come to the Bible, we find other things that inform us. We find out there is putting on truth that puts off sin. It's not automatic. Just because Jesus took away the sin of the world doesn't mean it will disappear from your life. You're going to have to mortify sin. You're going to have to, by faith, agree with God and appropriate truth and put off sin and renew your mind. Right? There's stuff that you're going to do that are going to bring the reality of the Lamb of God into your life. Now, if the Lamb of God has not taken away sin, you can try all you want. You'll never experience freedom. But if he has taken it away, and then in this fallen world where we still live in these bodies, and we still have issues of doubt and unbelief, it's not an automatic. Can I tell you today? John the Baptist declared Jesus as the Lamb of God and the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. If my experience is deficient in either one of these, I should not rewrite the Bible. I should reconsider my experience and seek to draw my experience into what the Bible clearly says, which I think we've had a good chance to do today. Well, this morning, this morning is about, it's about entering in. 
we have this wonderful promise from God. The promise is for you. The promise is for you and your children. It's all who believe. God has torn the veil. The passion of God is for his presence to flood our lives like a river of living water, not, not an eyedropper. Our experience may be eyedropper theology. It's a little bit barely touched. Am I wet? Am I wet? I'm not sure. Am I wet? But the pictures of God are pouring out pictures. They're powerful pictures. Guys, are we guilty of having tragically downgraded the passion of God's desire? When he tore the veil, he wanted to come in like a river into our lives. And he wanted to pour out his spirit upon us. And he wanted us to experience his presence in amazing ways, in powerful ways, both as an indwelling presence and as an upon presence. Both. Now this morning, do you want this? Do you really want this? Or are you content to live without it? Many of us can be very content to have great theology, but really nominal practice. We can grow content with that. Do I really want this? The invitation of Jesus is, all of you who thirst, come. Come and drink. And out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Well, the first thing I've got to ask myself is, am I thirsty this morning? If I'm okay where I'm at, then that's not thirst. If I want more, if I know there's more, if I'm hungry for more, if I believe that God has more in store for the Christian life than what I've known so far, that's thirst. God, there's more. I want more. God, you wanted more for me. That's thirst. Question. What do you expect will happen? If you're thirsty, the invitation is come and drink. Come and drink. Come and, come and receive. Now, what do you expect will happen when you come? Well, I don't know. I've come before and nothing's happened. Is your experience going to be the father of your theology? You understand, Keith, I've been prayed for before and just, you know, nothing's happened. Well, you know what? I don't, you know, I mean, I want more, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not convinced that's really where, what the Bible is all about in terms of this category. Can I say this? If somebody's going to come and drink, you have to come in faith. Faith anticipates something. Something's going to happen when I come. Something is going to happen. If you're coming to be saved, the inward working of the Spirit will take time to work itself out in your life. And you'll begin to experience fruit of a new birth. But if the Spirit falls on you, you're going to experience the Spirit falling on you. I don't have any reason to tell you to express something else. Can anybody, from what we've looked at in Scripture, can anybody say, well, you know, my thoughts are I would come, spirit would fall, and nothing would happen. Can anybody make a biblical case for that? Anybody? Did anybody do that in Scripture? That that's, doesn't seem to be found on the pages of Scripture. If I'm going to wet my expectations from the Bible, I'm going to expect the Spirit's going to come. And when He comes, well, what might you expect would happen? Don't let me, don't let me fill it in for you. Based on all the scriptures we just read, what might you expect would happen? Well, the two most common things that are mentioned here over and over again are what? 
They spoke in tongues. And they prophesied. They extolled the great things of God. Now, I don't think the Bible meant to say that's the only thing that can happen. Nothing else can happen. That's it. No, nothing outside that line. But at the same time, when the Bible says it over and over and over again, it does kind of give me the expectation that that's, that's normal. When the Spirit's poured out, that's kind of the normal experience. And other things as well, I'm sure. So, if you're here this morning, I want you to be able to come. I want you to be able to come full of faith because the Scriptures have made a clear case that the God who rent the veil, who took away our sin, did so for a reason. He did so so His Spirit could come in our midst in a powerful way. And the church could be ignited and inflamed with the presence of God in our midst in powerful, Spirit-driven ways. And there's more. There's more than what you and I have experienced, and I want it. Well, if you desire that, and you have faith for it, listen, if you don't have faith for it, I would tell you this. Don't come this morning. Take this home, wrestle with it, argue with it. Argue with it with an open heart and let God convince your faith. That is what I... If you come up here with both your hands tied and sewn your mouth shut, I'm coming because I feel like I'm, you know, I'm the most unspiritual person in the building if I don't. So, yeah, I'm here. Go ahead, God. Make me prophesy. We're speaking tongues. You know, if that's how I'm coming, then I'm not full of faith. Right? Relax, okay? Relax. Just come before God. Come relaxed. Come and say, Lord, I see this, and I want it. I'm thirsty, and I'm coming to drink. All right, that's you this morning. I want to ask you to get up. I think it's helpful to respond and not just sit in your seat. So if, if you're thirsty this morning, you see more here than what you're experiencing. I want to ask you to come. I'd like to do this. I'd like everybody who's coming for that, I'd like for you on this half of the building, if you can squeeze around that way. I'm going to need folks full of faith to to come pray with folks and to lay their hands on them. Why lay their hands on them? Because the Bible gave us that example in several places. Not in every place. In Cornelius' house, the Spirit just came. And he fell. And people began to speak in tongues and experience the presence of God. For some, they laid their hands on them and they received. In just a moment, I'm going to give the service to Matt to lead us. I'm going to come down and start praying for people. I want the other pastors to be able to come and pray for people. I want us to have faith that, that God would fill with the Spirit. And if you're here this morning and God has put faith in your heart to pray for folks, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, if you're, if you're here this morning, I just want you, to, I want you to listen to me with one ear, but I want you to tune into God right now. I want you to be aware of the intention of God. God's great care. I want you to see God tearing a veil from top to bottom. I want you to see a father running down a road to his, his prodigal son. I want you to see him engulfing you. I want you to know that God wants his presence permeating your life, poured out upon your life, filling you, near to you, overwhelming you, clothing you with power for all that he's called you to do. And I want you to begin to just just talk to God, begin to interact with the Lord, begin to pray out. Many of the things that will happen in a response to God are verbal expressions. There's prophecy. You may have a sense of an impression from God. 
Well, if that, that, that impression is ever going to escape your life and out of your mouth, then you're going to have to take it and put it in the words. It's going to be something in your head. It's going to be an image, a picture, an element of God that you may just begin to extol the great things of God. You may proclaim something about God and His dealings. Give word to that. The miracle is on the activity, not just on, I'm aware of this. If you have an impression to speak, if you're going to speak in tongues today because God has come and fallen upon you, you will, God will not speak in tongues for you. This is not a robot moment. God will not take possession of your body, overrule your nervous system, and force you to speak. If you're going to speak, it's going to be because the nerves that connect to your brain, are, you're going to tell your mouth to move. And you're going, to, you're going to begin to sense an utterance, and the words may not be words that you're familiar with, but you're going to begin to speak. That's what they did in the Bible. It says they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance. But they spoke. So if you have a sense, speak. If you're worshiping God, worship God. But just begin to let your mouth be available to speak other words. Just begin to worship God. Let's just begin to wait on the Lord. Oh, Spirit of God, come in this place. Come as you desire. Come fulfill, oh God, your great desire when you sent your Son. Oh, Jesus, thank you that you have removed the barrier. Lord, thank you that every person responding this morning who is in your kingdom is not staring at the backside of a veil. The veil's torn, Lord. God, we see it laying on the side, ripped down by you, Lord, that your presence might be amongst your people, that you might come and move in this place, God. Oh, God.